Please open your copies of God's Word to the last book of the Old Testament, to the prophet Malachi, and to chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. We'll read the whole of that chapter together, but it is the verses 6 to the end of that chapter that we hope to, with the Lord's help, to examine this evening. So let's read together Malachi chapter 1, and praying that the Lord will open our hearts to His precious Word this evening. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. The Burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, said, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel." A son honoureth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honour? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name, and ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now... I pray you, beseech God that he, will be pre that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, and that ye say, the table of the Lord is polluted, 
and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. He said also, Behold, what a weariness is it, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye have brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Amen, and may it please the Lord to bless his word to each and every one of us uh, this evening. Let us briefly pray. Oh God, we once again give thee humble thanks and praise for thy precious word. That the voice of God has, has gone forth, and that we have heard thy words, the scriptures of truth spoken in our hearing. And we know from the scriptures that this is a great means of grace, whereby we may obtain faith. Faith cometh by the hearing of the word of God. So we come before thee with great inability, with empty hands, with nothing except, O oh God, our sin. And pray for thee to have mercy upon us and to do good with thy word unto us this evening. That we know, may know thy word to be that word that convicts us, that challenges us, that converts us, that cleanses us. We may know thy mercies unto us, each and every one individually, that thy word may be understood from the youngest to the eldest, that thou would grant those ears to hear with, to grant the heart to be open to receive the seed of thy word, O oh Lord, that tonight thou will pour out thy spirit upon the seed of that word and that it may bring forth fruit pleasing unto God, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of thy spirit. And as we know that these fruits will end up in everlasting life, so God, have mercy, give help in the hearing, give help in the preaching, pour out thy spirit Upon, upon me, O Lord, upon thy servant, I may be enabled to preach clearly and with the power of the Spirit of God to the glory of the name of God. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Having just last Lord's Day uh, examined the first five verses of the prophet Malachi, uh, we saw there that the Lord declared his great love towards his people. A great and genuine love, and these, of course, are not like the words of man. Let God be true in every man a liar. He's not just saying these words of truth just to manipulate you, to use you, as men will often say to women. 
But these are true words concerning a true love. And as we read, especially as regarding his electing love. We touched upon that this morning as well. The electing love of God. The unconditional electing love of God. Seeing nothing in his people. Seeing nothing that was for good. Seeing all their wickedness, of course. But in spite of their wickedness, unconditionally choosing them uh, to be his people saying how he loves his people, that he, is, he proves it because he chose them. He did not choose Esau, he choose ja- chose Jacob. And those other matters that we looked at. But now the Lord complains to his people, having expressed his love to them, his electing love. He now complains to them about their gross lack of love to him. That he loves them and has loved them with an everlasting love. And then he says to them, but you do not love me. And there are so many ways as we go through Malachi where we'll see this. See these correct complaints. These righteous complaints. They do not love him. And they do not love him in two ways that we shall see. They do not love him as a father and they do not love him as a master. And yet they should. And they do not love him in in the ways of of, of simple or childlike and servant-like obedience when it comes to the means of grace that he has graciously given to them. These pictures of the gospel, these pictures of Christ, these pictures of God's grace that he has the means of grace, that is, that he is exclusively granted to his people. And yet his people have taken them lightly. That which was exclusively given to the Old Testament people of God and denied to the heathen, they have begun to despise And even spite of their despising of these privileges that they have as the people of God with these these means of grace, the whole sacrificial system that, that paints a picture of Jesus Christ and the salvation only to be found in the gospel, but then the Lord turns around and rebukes them. He says, but I will yet have a people. And they're not drawn exclusively from within the borders of Israel But my name shall be great among the Gentiles, the Lord says. Prophesying here at the, at the, the beginning, almost the beginning, not quite, but almost the beginning of the 400 years of, of, of prophetic silence, that this gospel that is to be found within this sacrificial system, the signpost to Jesus Christ, will yet have a full harvest in all those nations round about Israel that did not have these gospel privileges that they had and that they despise. Pointing, of course, to the Great Commission here prophesied in advance. He's saying, you do not glorify my name, but my name will be glorified. It shall yet be glorified. And that's at the very heart of what the Lord's rebuke is in verses 6 to 14, literally at the very heart 
He, he talks about this future glorification, that if his Old Testament people will not glorify him, he will make himself a great worldwide global people for the global glory of God. Something of which we hope to look at this evening in these words. The global glory of God, uh, the title of the sermon. And with the Lord's gracious help this evening, we will consider verses 6 to 14. And we open up uh, these verses firstly with the twofold rebuke against his priests. The twofold rebuke against his priests. Uh, he bemoans this. He says in verse 6 A son honoreth his father, and a son, understanding the word honoreth, honoreth or obeyeth his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts? Unto you, O priests, that despise my name. The Father's honor. The Father's honor is something that the Lord here makes very clear to his people. We often have this idea that, 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 that there's not much spoken about God the Father, especially as a father to his people in the Old Testament. And that is very true. There are few and far between little messages and hints here and there. But, but here we have just on the, uh, just as it were, on the, on the cusp of that 400 year silence and before Christ comes, here we have yet a, a very clear uh, revelation that God is the Father to his own people, that he is a father. And the reason why that it would appear that the, that the Old Testament is, is not very vocal and not very frequent in speaking of God as a father, as a, as a tender father, as a caring father, although it is there to be found, is because that honor is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. That when he comes and when he is incarnate, that he will reveal the Father to the peoples. First to the people of God, as in the Jews, but also to all that will be brought in uh, to the people of God through uh, the preaching of the gospel. As the Lord himself says, that if you've seen me, you've, you've seen the Father, and it is the privilege of Christ to reveal the Father, to reveal the fatherhood of God. And, and then when we consider this here, what is he saying? He's saying, I am your Father. The fifth commandment is honor thy Father. Where is my honor? And so that teaches us also the fifth commandment is not bound to earthly parents. It expresses itself in all sorts of parents of authority, those who have a, a duty of care towards you, whether it is in the, in the civil sphere, the political sphere, uh, in the church, but pointing to heaven that there is a heavenly Father who is to be honored above all. Honored and loved. What is that? That's that trusting love of a child the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of. That we must come uh, to the Lord uh, in a childlike manner. Simple, trusting, uh, not allowing ourselves to be filled with cynical thoughts and, and complicated thoughts, but very simply just coming to the Lord to receive from Him what we need most. And when we first come to Him, what do we most need when we first come to the Lord? It is forgiveness of sins, it is peace with God. And thereafter, continuing that forgiveness and that peace with God, but that relationship with the Lord as our Father and we as His children. He wants us to be children, honoring children, loving children. 
If then I be a father, where is mine honor? Indeed, where is the honor that we are to give to our heavenly Father? Great honor is to be given to him. Great glory is to be given to his Son, whereby the Father is honored. The Father's honor is where he begins. And then he moves on to the Master's fear. The Master's fear, and what does that then uh, say to us? When we consider that the word Master there, is a word that means a lord, a ruler. It doesn't, it is not the word master as in a schoolmaster, but that he which has authority. Could it be a master of a, of a, of a, it, it will, in this case, it is the master of a servant. He who has the right to command and to tell, go here, go there, do this and do that. And the servant is to say, yes, master, and to do it. Therefore, what do we understand? It is the absolute obedience of a servant. And these two, are great descriptions, a child and a servant of every believer. We have a manifold um, relationship to the Lord. He is our Father, He is our Lord, He is our King, He is our Master. In so many different relationships that we have, and we are yet, and we are to fulfill all those various aspects. And even come to that sweet truth that the Lord is our friend. Are we a friend to our great friend? Are we, a, are we a faithful younger brother to our elder brother? And so, but these two relationships are, are, are brought here. Maybe these two are then to represent all of those relationships, some of which I've just pointed out. Maybe, but let's look at these two. So the Father's honor and then the Master's fear. We've already looked at the Father's honor. The absolute obedience of a servant. So the love of a child and the obedience of a servant. One speaks of relationship, the other speaks of duty. So there is to be a duty, there is to be a, re a relationship, there is to be a duty. And the Lord ex expects it, the Lord uh, demands it. He comes before his people here and makes it very clear. He says, where is my fear? That we are to fear him. That we are to fear him. That, 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 that fear that teaches us how to love. Not that we're to sit in the corner in the darkened room, shaking away out of anxiety for what the Lord will do, but that, that precious fear, that reverence that teaches us how to love him properly, that we would not despise him. Ah, that's the problem with Israel. That's what we will see in the coming verses, is that they do not love him as a child, and they do not fear him as a Lord, and therefore they do not honor him, they do not fear him, and they, therefore they despise him. And so you understand how important it is to love the Lord, to honor the Lord, to fear the Lord, lest this be spoken of us also that we will read in these verses. So God's honor and God's fear both belong to God, and we're to give it to him. We're not to choose. So, well, I, I don't like that aspect. I don't like that image. No, we're to give all to the Lord that he demands of us. And we look to this then in verse 6 as the Lord gives these uh, rebukes that he hones in on the priests. He says, O priests that despise my name. So he seems to, in the very beginning of Malachi, he's speaking to all of his people. He says, this is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. He's speaking to the whole of God's people. And he continues speaking to all of God's people. And then, in, and then towards the end of verse 6, he seems to narrow it down to the priests. 
So is this application and everything we're going to read here in verses 6 to 14 only toward the priests? Yes and no. It's annoying when I make answers like that. Yes, it is. It's directed to the priests, but the priests are in charge of the means of grace. The priests are there to direct the people of God. They are there to instruct the people of God and even to rebuke the people of God, but they have not been doing their duty which has allowed all sorts of misbehavior, as we will see, by the people of God. So he's now talking to the gatekeepers, as it were, that you haven't been keeping gate, you haven't been keeping the altar, you haven't been keeping the temple, at the table. So yes, it is to the priests, via the priests also to the behavior that they've allowed to run riot amongst the people of God. But also in this way, all of God's people are also meant to be priests, not that we are Levitical priests of the temple, but there is the priesthood of all believers and say, well, that's a New Testament uh, doctrine, preacher. No, it's an Old Testament doctrine as well. Exodus 19 and verse 6. Just before the giving of the, te- of the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And, and, and that phrase is also repeated in the New Testament, as you may know, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that is a people who have been become the bought personal possession. Not that we're a bunch of weirdos, is what that word peculiar means. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So separate from the Levitical priesthood, separate from the priesthood of Melchizedek that Jesus fulfills, but there is to be a priesthood of all believers, Old and New Testament believers. And so therefore, yes, speaking to the Levites here, speaking to the whole of the people, speaking to the priesthood of believers. The twofold rebuke against his Secondly, let us look at this rebuke that's further opened up because he just doesn't leave it there uh, concerning his honor and his fear. He then goes out to explain uh, what he means because we see there at the end of verse 6 that there is an answer. It's quite like a catechism, this, this, this prophecy of Malachi. There's, there's a question, there's an answer. There's a question, there's an answer. So he says, O priests that despise my name, and ye, that is the priests, say, wherein have we despised thy name? He knows what's in their heart. He knows what they have said, and he, as it were, quotes them. Maybe from the work of previous uh, prophets or previous work of the prophet Malachi. We see clearly then that there is a despising of the means of grace. Despising of the means of grace. Of grace, and that is opened up to us in, in, in verse 7. But that's essentially what we're of. Wherein have we despised thy name? And then from verse 7 all the way up to verse 14, we have this explanation that the means of grace that are given, the sacrificial system, the, the, the images, the pictures, the illustrations of Christ in, in, in all of his offering work, or in all of his sacrificial work, in all of his work of atonement, all described in all these ways, that there's been a despising of what that is. And how do you despise it? Is that, that when you take it on board as a dead religion, you go through the motions, you go through the ritual, and yet it really means nothing for your soul. Is that you despise the means of grace. 
and therefore you do not honor the Lord, you do not honor his name, you do not honor him and fear him as master. So verse 7 then opens up how that means of grace is despised. He talks of the offering of polluted bread in verse 7. He offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And two words that we have that are almost seeming interchangeable in, in, these, in these verses that we have in chapter 1. It speaks about the table and the altar, but the table is not the same as the altar. The table of showbread is in the holy place, but the altar is outside of the holy place. And yes, there were offerings of wheat and there were offerings of, of bread. But it was the place where the sacrificial animals were, uh, were, were, caused to, were killed and the blood was poured out and that they were burnt upon the altar. And so why do we have that exchange of words, ye offer polluted bread? Well, it is the priests that go into the holy place every seven days with a fresh 12 loaves of showbread and put it on the table. So that would make sense when he's talking directly to the Levite Levitical priests and their work in the temple. But then he goes on to say, yes, you find the table that you, in that you, wherein have we polluted thee? Is the bread itself polluted? Is the bread itself not made out of the finest of the wheat? That is possible, is that what he means? They've just got some old barley mixed it in with the wheat and it's not particularly fresh, not particularly good. And they despise it. I think that is certainly something that we may understand from this. But I think what he's speaking of in general, because he will move on to the altar, he'll move on to the sacrificial animals. It's everything to do with the public worship of God and the means of grace has been denigrated. It's been pulled down. It has backslidden. It has become a wearisome, a weariness, as he says in verse 13. And so it's become a dead religion. It's become a means of weariness, a means of ritual, but not, not a means of grace. The table of the Lord is contemptible. It's not kept as it should be. So taking that as the holy place and the temple of the showbread, the table of the showbread, we move on and see the contempt of the altar as well in verse 8. Speaking of imperfect sacrifices being brought now, if you know anything about the, the system of sacrifices in the Old Testament, you had to bring the best of the best. Every animal that you brought, every bird that you brought, it was to be examined. Is it perfect? It is to be perfect. There is to be no blemish. There is to be no... Um, it's not to be a lame animal. It's not to be a blind animal. It's not an animal with a, a, ca a cancerous growth on its, on its head or anything like that. In fact, even when the animal was sacrificed, depending on, on the sacrifice, they would even check the innards to see how pure the animal was. Inside and out, absolutely pure and perfect. And that had to be the case because it was an image of Christ. But here they are bringing in a contemptible image of Christ. It doesn't matter, they think. So God's command doesn't matter. And also they have a bad understanding of their own sin. Because the sin is not so bad. Therefore, the sacrifice doesn't have to be so great. But they offer blind 
He says, it's evil. You offer the lame and sick animals. Is it not evil? It has cost them very little. It's those animals that are the, 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 the runt of the litter, the, 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 the animals that are lame, the animals that they cannot sell on the market because they wouldn't get a good price for them, they then take those to the temple. And then he gives a very clear, a very human example. He says, take that to your governor. Take, take that to, the, to, to, to the, the governor of Jerusalem. Take that to the, to the king, as it were. Take these um, mank and lame creatures, blind creatures, deformed creatures. Bring them and offer them for him to eat and enjoy a feast. Do you think he would be impressed? Do you think he would be do you think you'd be doing him a pleasure? Do you think he would take that as a gift and be happy with it? Not at all. Not at all. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? He will not. And so if a human governor would not receive this blind and lame creature to be cooked in his kitchens and laid on his table, how dare you then bring that to the holy altar of God? That is there as a means of grace that you, Old Testament believer, can look upon that animal and see that animal dying in my place. Its blood poured out for my blood, me obtaining forgiveness by the death of this animal. It goes deep. The despising of the means of grace with these imperfect sacrifices. It is a picture, of course, of how a sinner would come before God with great imperfection of works, imperfection of religious duty, imperfection of personal strictness and discipline, uh, trying to bring Bible reading and church attendance and all these other matters to God as some sort of sacrifice as some sort of way, well, surely I, I, I wear this and I do this and I, and I don't swear and I don't drink and I don't, don't go to the cinema and I don't do this and, I, and I'm at church and I, and I do these things and all this, that and the other. And it's essentially what you're doing. You're bringing your own blind, lame, deaf and corrupt sacrifices before God. And he is not pleased with them. If you're bringing them instead of Christ. I certainly don't bring them as well as Christ. No, you bring them to repent of them and lay hold on Christ. So they have these pictures of Christ and they can't be, they despise these pictures of Christ that they have. They will not bring the best and they should do because God has given the best. His only begotten son, Jesus. So there is the contempt of the altar and who is it that brings this contemptible uh, sacrifice? Well, it is the people. It is the people that actually bring this sacrifice, but we'll look at that when we come to verse 10. Though the rebuke still goes out primarily to the priests. So there's, the, the, there's a despising of the means of grace. There's the bringing of polluted bread. There is a contempt of the altar. And verse uh, 13 it gives us a, another rebuke of the Lord where he talks about they are weary of, obe weary of obedience. They just, the whole of this is a weariness. They have no joy. And yet this is the command. This is the command of God. You read it throughout the Old Testament. You, 
You read it in, you sing it in the Psalms, you, you read it in the prophets, that, that we see it in the law that we are to come up with rejoicing to the house of God. Because we have a sacrifice, because we have peace. The, 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 the service of the Lord is to be, I, I joyed when they said, let us go to the house of God. And yet they're not. It's a weariness. Verse 13, ye said also, behold, what a weariness is it. They're tired. They, they see it as a chore. They see it as a labor to attend the means of grace and, and to be obedient to God. It's, it's for them, it is weary. This is a terrible thing. This is a, spiritually, this is not a good symptom to find the things of God to be a weariness. It sounds like the flesh and certainly does not sound like the spirit. And ye have snuffed at it. When we think of snuff, we might think of just breathing in like that. But the idea here is, is to sniff at something, to, to sneer at it, to disdain it. And you can well imagine that the priest sort of going through the motions. So, right, you know, uh, we've got to do this and we've got to do that. Okay, I'll do the next bit. And they're sort of, they're not taking it seriously. They have no fear of the Lord. They're just going through the motions and they find it a weariness. And they, and they, they disdain the exactness of God's glory of his means of grace and what he says but they are not approaching the Lord in the right way human pride exalted above humble worship and then he goes on to again say and you have brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick thus you brought an offering should I accept this of your hand saith the Lord they're coming with the wrong attitude. It's not a humble attitude of repentance. It's not, a, it's not an attitude that would please the Lord. It's not an attitude of faith. It's only by faith that, the, that we can please God. And so if we're then to consider these priests and to these Old Testament believers and, and considering some of the rebukes that we've seen of God toward them, we, we should take it seriously ourselves. What would the Lord say to me this evening in that regard? We can't just say, well, this is something from 2,400 years ago. It's from a different nation. It's from, he's speaking especially to the priests, and we're not Levitical priests. And, and so what does it mean to me? Well, it can mean a lot. What is our attitude to the gospel? What is our attitude to public worship? What is our attitude to the sacraments? Remember, these sacrifices are all sacraments. How is our attitude? Can we find ourselves going through the motion? We can. Can we put greater emphasis on our own ability than the, than the means of grace? Yes, we can. Do we then come before the Lord hoping that he will be pleased with us instead of coming to the Lord and saying, be pleased with Christ? Yes, it is good that we examine ourselves and how the Lord would take this word and use it for our own good. The twofold rebuke against his priests, we've seen the rebuke more revealed and opened up. Thirdly then, there's a call for repentance. There's a call for repentance. We see that in verse 9. And it seems to me as if Malachi's voice is heard here. 
As if Malachi is now saying, now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. I think it's clearly Malachi's voice. This hath been by your means, your means of grace, which is no grace at all. Your, your means, your works, your flesh, your self-righteousness, your religion. That's something we've just already looked at. Will he regard your persons? Will he find you favorable before him, saith the Lord of hosts? We're coming back to the voice of God through the prophet. In some ways we could say, you know, which priest will now repent of this, that the word has gone forth? But notice with me also that God does not write them off. He's now sent a, a word of repentance through his prophet. All these rebukes and rebukes and rebukes, and they're all true. They're all absolutely true. And then this call to repentance because God is merciful. Doesn't write them off, but causes his prophet to exhort them. Exhort them to what? To humble themselves. To humble themselves. Beseech God. Plead with God. Call upon God. Get on your knees before God. That he will be gracious unto us. You might get this idea, but, but surely God being gracious unto you is something that he sovereignly does. And so we are just to wait for him to sovereignly give us grace. No, we're to beseech God for it also. Beseech God that he will be gracious to us. This hath been by your means. Those means are unacceptable. You must use the Lord's means. And then he will regard your persons. So which of the priests will repent? Which of us will repent when we consider well, we have not been attentive to the Lord, honoring him and fearing him as he demands of us? Well, secondly, which priest will fence the altar? Which peace, priest will fence the altar? And that's what we see, verse 10 then. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. These rebukes get stronger and stronger as we continue in this prophetic word. And what does he mean? The language is not that very clear, if by first reading at least. Who is there among you priests that would shut the doors for no reason? That, that expression for naught is shared with the next phrase, neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. In other words, priests, you are to fence the altar. You are to fence as we would fence the table for the Lord's table, they are to fence the altar. They are to shut out polluted and profane sacrifices. They're not to allow them into the temple. Shut the doors against the profane animals. And then he moves on, but you should only kindle the fire for acceptable sacrifices. And because they don't do so, what does it say? I have no pleasure in you. You do not fence the table. You do not fence the... The, the altar in this case. You allow all sorts in and they shouldn't be allowed in. And then he says, I have no pleasure in you, 
which is actually a very deep, penetrating rebuke from God. It's one thing for the Lord to say, I have no pleasure in your works, but then for the Lord to take it very personally and say, I have no pleasure in you. Strong rebuke. A deep rebuke. The Lord is not pleased. And he goes on to say, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. So the way that the priests have been dealing with the means of grace, allowing the people to bring in any, any old uh, rotten animal, a corrupt animal, a lame animal, blind animal, allowing that to be burnt upon the altar, instead of being strict about the doors of the temple and strict about the altar itself, and the Lord comes and says, I will not accept an offering at your hand. I'm closing off the means of grace to you, priests. How are you going to be forgiven of your sins? They should remember the word of the prophet. I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. Because here we have the Lord threatening to close off the means of grace because you have not been coming in the Lord's way at the Lord's time with the Lord's offering. And so is every sinner before God. Having guilt, having no trust and no faith in Jesus, not coming with a humble, repentant heart, happy with their own, their own perverted religion, if they have any, and expecting God to take pity upon them when they die. But that is not the God of the scriptures that is not the god of creation that is not the god of the gospel i have no pleasure in you saith the lord of hosts neither will i accept an offering at your hand so we see that gracious call for repentance our fourth point is the future magnification of god's name because although his priests on are not taking their responsibility, the means of grace, and they're in the temple. They're not taking it seriously. They find it a wearisome thing. They are not obeying God out of love as children. They're not obeying Him out of their fear for Him as their servants. They have despised the means of grace. And so God says, as it were, I'm going to the Gentiles with this. My people will not have it. I will go to the Gentiles for from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, from east and to west. I will have my people. So many of the Old Testament people of God have rejected the gospel, and the Lord therefore sends it to the nations, the nations that they look down upon, the nations that were outside of the, of the commonwealth of faith into which every Jew was born, but they began to despise it. They became weary of it. And so the Lord has left them. There is still a remnant. Of course, the New Testament church itself was, was made of New Testament Jewish believers. And yet so many have not been brought in, but have left, have left. But we see the future magnification of God's name then as he goes, maybe even to make them jealous, and make them jealous of what he is yet to do 
to the, to the, to the Gentiles. Of course, it was the Gentiles who were, who were there to be made jealous when they were to look at the, uh, at the purity of religion, to look at the, the, the blessing of God upon Israel, uh, the strength that this little people had in such a short time, having been delivered out of Egypt. All the nations, they knew what was going on and they began to fear Jehovah and they were to become jealous of not having Jehovah as their God. And now, as it were, the tables are turned, and now the Lord is going to go to the Gentiles with the gospel, and he is going to make his own people jealous in due course, as he is pleased to remove their blindness. And we see there, as we, as we read and open up uh, verse 11, we see the positive effect of the gospel. What do we see then? For even from, from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, from east to west, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. The world of Gentile believers, this great commission that has not yet even been announced, would yet be 430 years after Malachi, but the Great Commission would go out. Yes, it would begin in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria. But then it would go out to the four corners of the world. And it would see great victory. And we have seen that. We have seen that in the last 2,000 years. We've seen within, within a matter of a few centuries that this, the pagan Roman Empire was, was taken over uh, by, uh, by Christianity. It became quickly a paganized Christianity, but even so, much of that paganism w- was put away or subsumed. And the, and the gospel went further, and the gospel has. It, it found a home in India, in, in parts of India for a time, and, and other, other parts of the world. It came up into, into Europe through the work of Paul, bringing it into Greece and into Macedonia. And it had a great positive effect. And you see, yet, yeah, but there were times of great declension that it became just this, this dead religion, something of which we've been looking at. And, and for years, there was no real revival, no, 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 no true saving of people yet. But the Lord has always had a remnant of his own. So even in those times of medieval darkness, the Lord still had a remnant within the church, within the churches, and we see, of course, the Great Reformation in the 1500s, which continued into a second Reformation in the, uh, Reformation in the 1600s. We see that the Lord has continued His work in, 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 in delivering half of the continent of Europe from the darkness of, of Roman Catholicism and, and, and opening up the light of the gospel in, in so many nations, and, and that, that has gone forth, and it's still going forth even today. It's still continuing on, and as I mentioned it before, if we have our eyes fixed upon the, <clears throat> the Christian countries of, of Western Europe and of Canada and the U.S., we would be very quickly uh, depressed if we walk by sight and not by faith. We would be very depressed to see what the gospel is doing, but there are so many other world, parts of the world and areas within the world that we've just mentioned where the gospel is going forth. People are still being saved. People are still being saved in Calgary even this year. Many are coming to faith in South America. Many are coming to faith in China. Many are coming to faith in India. The Lord is still building. The Lord is still making sure that from the east to the west, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. He's still building his church and we will see and understand from this is it as far as even Malachi says it is no it's still not from the east to the west 
but it will yet be from the east to the west that my name shall be great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord. It will still yet be. And so let us not walk by sight and not by faith, but let us walk by faith and not by sight and know that the Lord has made very great promises that the gospel, although it be trampled underfoot in our rich, wealthy, intellectual and anti-Christian society, and yet the Lord is still going to be victor because he is a king, because he is a Lord, and he shall be victorious. The gospel shall be victorious from sea to shining sea, even And I trust even in Canada, as the Lord is pleased not to tarry much longer. The positive effect of the gospel, from east to west, Christ known, Christ glorified. But then look at this, that it is a living faith that he's speaking of. It's not just that they will have the knowledge and just have a religion, but in every place incense shall be offered in my name. So is that not the physical incense? I don't believe so. I believe it's pointing to prayer. Prayer, incense is a picture of prayer. In the Old Testament ceremonies, it was a picture of prayer. The prayers of the saints rising up. It is the picture that's used in Revelation. That prayer will be made. What will prayer be made for? Prayer will be made for by people who are hearing the gospel and knowing that they must come to the Lord and repent and plead for forgiveness. That is the first and the most important prayer. And then every other prayer, every other care that they cast upon the Lord for their needs as the Lord is pleased to build the church and as the devil comes against the church. The prayers that will be made and the pure offering yet to be given. Now here's the difference. So we have, his name is exalted, that great prayer is real, living religion is made and that there's a pure offering to be given. See the contrast between what he's been rebuking the people and the priests about. You're making such a hash of it all because of unbelief and selfishness and godlessness. And yet, from east to west, the world will be filled, not with Jews, the Jews will be there as well, but with Gentiles who believe. They believe, they exalt his name, they make prayers to him, and a pure offering, a pure offering, This points to the cross of Christ, of course. That one pure offering. That one pure, perfect, blemish-free, spot-free, sinless offering that was yet to be made in the time of Malachi. 400 years, 30 years hence from Malachi, then there would be that pure and perfect offering. And the news of that offering, the the good news of that offering that would go out and uh, and would convert heathen, after heathen, after heathen, even nations coming to know something of the glory of Christ. Here is a perfect offering. Forget about your blind and your deaf and your sick offerings. I have a perfect offering. And there is a perfect offering. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You have no offering to bring the Lord. Your religion is just as bad as that of the priests here and the people that bring it. But if you have Jesus Christ, you have a perfect offering. And that offering is to be made with prayer and you are to exalt the name of Jesus as the Gentile you are. To come before him. There is a final gospel warning that we see in verse 14. 
we see the accursed hypocrite. It says, but be cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male and voweth and sacrifice unto the Lord a corrupt thing. How do we, well, we can understand this very clearly. Isn't it a repeat of what he said to the priest, that this is the type of person that would come in? They've got a sufficient sacrifice there, according to the law of Moses, and yet they choose the worst, yes. I think that's true. Very literally understood and taken. But I think this is a picture of the gospel hypocrite also. The gospel hypocrite, who is part of the people of God, comes and takes part in the means of grace. It's called here a deceiver. Hath in his flock a male. There is a male. There is a perfect sacrifice. There is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. But that's not what you're going to bring to the Lord. You're not bringing Christ to the Lord. You're bringing other things that we've already mentioned. You're not bringing the blood. You have no blood. You have no Christ. You're bringing other things. But cursed be the deceiver that sacrificeth, sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful, that is feared among the heathen. Even then, his name was feared among the heathen. The heathen knew much about Israel. The heathen world was looking at Israel in the same way that the heathen world looks at the church today. And that witness that we should have. So do we just leave it here then? Would we just see the, 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 the rebuke of God? Do we just see uh, the, 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 the anger of God against an incorrect use of the means of grace? Or should we not understand what it has to say to you this evening? That with your own works and your own ability, it is insufficient. It does not please the Lord. The Lord's anger is upon it. So what must you bring? You must come with the sacrifice that the Lord has prepared. So no longer relying upon yourself. No longer just passively sitting there at the footsteps of the temple, as it were, refusing to go in and lay your hand upon the sacrifice that has been prepared for you that you could never pay for, that you could never buy, that you could never bring to the Lord, but the Lord has brought it. Him, His Son. That you come humbly before the Lord, that you would beseech God that He would be gracious unto you, that you would lay hold no longer upon your means, but upon the means that God has prepared that his name would be great even in your life. That in your place, incense would be offered and that pure offering would be laid hold upon. Again, the Lord is not demanding things from you. He's expecting that you would take things from him. And they haven't. They haven't taken it from him. And therefore, they have not honored him and they have not feared him. But you tonight can honor and fear him. Although you feel no honor, you feel no fear, you call upon the Lord. You beseech Him, you, you take it seriously, you plead with Him. 
Not a casual thought that flits through the mind. Oh, yeah, I should be saved one of these days. One of these days I should repent. I don't know how. Yes, you do. You know how to apologize deeply for something foolish and wicked that you've done. There can be no one here that is free from having done something very foolish and wicked to their parents or at school or to the neighbors or whatever. And you've had to really apologize or you've at least witnessed someone else doing it. You understand the seriousness of it. Heartfelt. Absolute. Coming to the end of yourself. Turning away from your sin. Asking for the Lord's forgiveness of it. And seeking that new life in Jesus Christ is the, not only the call, not only the command, but the demand of the gospel. And every sinner has a duty to obey that. And when you do not find these things within yourself, again you go to God. You go to the Lord for whom nothing is impossible. And you pray for these things. You beseech him that he will be gracious unto you. As the Lord says, I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts. And my name is dreadful, full of dread among the heathen. May the Lord grant you that fear that you would find faith and lay hold on Jesus, this pure offering that you need for your soul. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank Thee for the Word of God and the truth of the Gospel. We thank Thee for Jesus Christ and the pure offering. We confess, O Lord, that we make uh, so much of the flesh and so much of self-righteous works, and yet these things are blind and deaf. They're lame. They are of no pleasure to Thee. They do not please Thee as payment for sin, but Christ does. And therefore we pray, O Lord, that we may beseech Thee this evening, truly, that Thou would be gracious unto us, that we would truly call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, and laying hold upon Jesus, the great means of grace, to find salvation for our souls, peace for our consciences, and a new life and an everlasting life in him. We call upon thee for help. In Jesus' name, amen.